You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. House. I see in your eyes where tomorrow is hiding in my heart. There's a bell ringing loud at the touch of your lips. Down the rainbow, I'm sliding with arrows. Keep falling as thick as clouds. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back in the booth this week is Mr. Rob St. Mary. It's like a horror movie. Also back with us this week is Mr. Miguel Rodriguez. Life is a horror movie. This week we are looking at House, the film by Nobuhiko Obayashi from 1977. It's a comic horror flick which tells the tale of seven nubile Japanese girls who visit the haunted house of one of their aunties. There they encounter all kinds of spooky and strange supernatural things as they get picked off one by one, maybe even two at a time, as the narrative, such that it is, proceeds. So yada yada yada, spoilers, deal with it. It's on Criterion. Go out, buy a copy. Rob, when was the first time you saw House, and what did you think? Oh, man. I remember uh, hearing about it in the re-release. I think this was in 09. It could have been 10. And I remember one of the reviews said, it's like the Evil Dead meets Scooby-Doo. And I go, oh, man, I'm in. (laughs) And I saw the trailer, and I go, this is nuts. And I think I may have saw it at the Detroit Film Theater at the DIA. And because Janus Films had put it out, which is uh, connected to Criterion, did a theatrical run before they put it out on DVD and Blu-ray. And I have the Blu-ray, and I love it. Not only that, but I love the Blu-ray because it has a short film by the director, Obayashi. And he's also responsible for one of the, the more crazy uh, Japanese commercials I've seen on YouTube, but we'll talk about that later. So for me... House is uh, an enjoyable film, and I have to say one that keeps giving me more and more the more I watch it and think about it. And this past watch, um, I actually have found some symbolism that I don't think was there the first time. And I don't even know if it was intended, but it seems to be intended for me. And um, yeah, so looking forward to chatting more about it. I made the mistake, uh, and I don't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, I was at a horror find horror film convention in Baltimore, and I bought a bootleg of this with along with Ricky O, the story of Ricky, ah. and <laughs> and both you know both were 
at the time impossible to find, but were kind of uh, notorious and 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 unfortunately, in the case of House, um, you know, it, it left me with a rather poor first exposure to this film, just because it looked terrible and the sound was terrible and. And I just thought, you know, I, I thought I was sold something I didn't quite get. And it wasn't until I think uh, like Rob, when the uh, the Janus re-release came out, I went to see it on the big screen. And I think this is intended for the big screen because it just it 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 requires the glory of that lighting and that production design and those images. And and it was a completely different experience for me when I saw it then. And And I just adore this movie now. I do remember when it was kind of traveling around on the bootleg circuit and, you know, you could download a copy through like Asian DVD club or whatever it's called. And for a long time, you could get it without subtitles. I can't imagine watching this one without subtitles because it's kind of difficult to understand even with subtitles, I would say. Yeah, and then it did hit the re-release, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I never ended up seeing it. I know Cinema Detroit would show it fairly often. It was kind of like one weekend they'd show The Room, the next weekend they'd show House, and then they'd repeat. And yeah, never saw it that way. I finally taped it off of, or sorry, DVR'd it off of TCM when they showed it on Underground, I think sometime last year, and this thing totally blew me away. I was just really surprised by it and very glad that now it is part of my life. Can I just take an aside here and say, you know, whatever deity that you pray to, Jeebus bless TCM Underground and Millie DeChirico and all those people who take these films and put them on Turner Classic Movies, which would never have been expected in the past and now is kind of like this treasure trove for us weird movie fans to go to a place like TCM for something like this? I think this is the second movie this month that I actually was exposed to, if not a first time, at least a second time when it comes to – because we just covered uh, Valerie in a Week of Wonders, and that was another underground film. They're doing the work of a higher power, let's say. I have to say, getting into this movie, I was it dazzled me. The very first time I saw it, I really kind of had a hard time even understanding what was going on. It's – pretty much the story of one main girl who goes by the name of Gorgeous. And I love that all of these girls have these very um, interesting names, which are more like kind of like um, character traits than they are necessarily names. Yeah, you've got Gorgeous, Prof, uh, Mac, which uh, means stomach. And she's the rotund one, of course. Uh, you've got Fantasy, Melody, did you say sweet already? And Kung Fu. There are seven altogether. It's almost like the seven dwarves. All of their names as nicknames are all representative of either some trait that they have physically, such as, as you were saying, Mac being, you know, stomach, or things that they're hip to. So obviously Prof is sort of the nerdy one with glasses. Melody is the musician. Fantasy is more apt to get into fantasy and think about things. And then of course, gorgeous is the one with the model looks who's always doing her makeup and, you know, trying to, to be the most uh, stylish. I guess this is like uh, the spice girls before the spice girls, right? Cause each of them had their own uh, individual thing going on. I uh, see. I go seven dwarves. You go spice girls. I love it. The number seven is actually pretty important. I, mean, I don't know if we want to get into that now. Well, one thing I, I do want to say before that though, is, is you bring up the idea of, 
gorgeous being the main character. And one thing I've always found interesting and rewatching it, too, it still hits me, is that the film begins with this huge backstory for gorgeous because she's kind of our conduit into the house of her aunt. But then once the story actually gets rolling, gorgeous kind of fades into the background and we get a lot more of actually prof kind of taking a, a center role and some of the other girls. And and then we don't see gorgeous as much. So I always thought that was kind of uh, interesting that, they start with this kind of head haunt, you know, this lead character, lead protagonist, and then it just completely switches. And it's hard to tell where the t- it tips the apex, at what point it starts rolling away from Gorgeous and, and more focusing on the other girls. And what she basically allows us to do is to have these conversations on various aspects of family, because really the film is about is about family. It is about uh, marriage and all the different things that can happen uh, in that way. But like when it starts off, you see her and, and, and I love the way that we actually starts off the film by sort of this frame and frame thing where the first thing you see is the title. And then there's a box that says a movie. So <laughs> the, the one thing that you learn really quick about this film, and this is probably annoying to audiences who aren't hip to this kind of idea. And especially in 1977, this was rather radical because I can only think of one other horror film that did this. And it was 10 years earlier on another continent, which was, um, Jose Mujica Marin's and his, uh, awakening of the beast mm-hmm. where it really is a very postmodern horror film where it, it is aware of what it is. Uh, it, it knows that it's a film and like that line that I used at the front, what's where the one character says, it's like a horror film. There's certain aspects you know, of the way this thing goes and sort of irreality that does, you know, this sort of what re what real and what is not real and his willingness to not even give you that. Like he's willing to have cheap effects in there and all of this other stuff and kind of throw you off just for the sake of it's a movie. I can do whatever I want. You bring up a really good point about the the world that this inhabits. And, and you mentioned earlier uh, that Obayashi made commercials. He was a commercial director. And I think a big thing of what he was doing is making a horror film, but setting it in the world of a commercial. You know, it, it. if you see one of his commercials about gasoline or, or bath products or something, the kind of the artifice of the beautiful sunset and the family in the house and, and just the world that these commercial families occupy seems to be the same world that the characters in house occupy. The other aspect of that for me is, and we'll talk a bit more about this film in the second half, is this is a guy who, when you look at his work, was very much influenced by the French New Wave in good ways. Uh, as a matter of fact, the one short film that's on the Blu-ray um, has a, a nod to one of the directors in the French New Wave. But the one thing that I, that I really think comes through in the way Obayashi structures things and is willing to play with form and throw all this stuff in there is that much like Godard, who's breaking it open, he's kind of doing the same thing. He's kind of taking it to the next level, maybe throwing LSD on top of it in some way, where <laughs> he's willing to have jump cuts, he's willing to have intertitles, he's willing to have basically any kind of thing that you could do in a film, and he doesn't shy away from it and goes there, and 
is willing to have artifice. Like you were talking about the opening is her and she's in like the science lab and there's this whole thing with her and her friend and then they're going on. It's like, well, it's almost summer vacation. So they're like walking through school and they run into their teacher and they start talking to their teacher and it's like, Hey, it's almost summer vacation. What are you going to do? And it's like, I heard you're getting married and all this. That must be really cool. Do you love him? And she's like, Oh, it's an arranged marriage. So there's this question of an arranged marriage up front. And then she goes home to talk to her dad, who, who, who this I absolutely love, is a, uh, a film composer who just got back from Italy working with Leone. And Leone said that he liked his music better than Morcone's. So I, that, that's a nice little nod for us film buffs. But the patio that they're on is what I take it as is so obviously artificial. It's a set. It's a backdrop. He's not going for realism here. He's seeking something else. Yeah, and I think uh, it's not—it's more than a willingness, willingness for artifice. It is an embracing of artifice. Yeah, it looks so like, especially the sky just looks like such a backdrop, and just the lighting does not look like natural lighting. Just looks like studio lighting on them. And I love that we see almost this entire scene through this kind of window where we have these panes of glass which really distort everything that we see and everyone is fragmented which i think really plays into this whole idea of people being fragmented either via personality like we have the seven different personalities of these seven different girls or you know we have the actual fragmentation of body parts that we get going on later on but in this we have this kind of fragmentation of people's faces especially this woman ryoko who is moving in on gorgeous's dad and is proposed to be his new wife they're going to get married pretty soon and gorgeous is just not having it and that really helps push this into the narrative realm where we have ryoku and the dad going off on their vacation and then gorgeous taking it unto herself to write to her auntie and saying hey how about we come out here and see you auntie we haven't seen you in a long time and this then brings up the next level of of family the idea that we learn that her mother has died, dad's a widower, and he wants to start anew. And it's like, here's your new mom. And there's this, just through a couple of quick shots, this whole thing about her feeling like she's going to be replaced by this woman. That the things she used to do for her dad, such as helping him like mend his sweater and things like that, he's not going to need her anymore. So she's starting to feel put upon by this whole scenario. And I get the feeling that the new mom is neither good nor bad. She just is. Uh, we don't know enough about her. She doesn't seem to be a, a horrible person in any way. It's just the way that her perception of the world is. And then also her feeling that that he's betraying her mother, who has passed. I like how we go back and forth in time. We just slide so easily from this present that we've been put into, into sliding into that past and seeing those memories of her with her father's sweater and these things. And it's just like, we don't get title cards or anything. We just get a nice cut and off we go. And so if you're not really paying attention, you're not going to know that now all of a sudden we are in the past and then we move back into the present just as fluidly. And this is where we get the next level of family because, and the idea of marriage again, because when she's in school and she talks to the teacher, the teacher talks about an arranged marriage. Obviously, her father's a widower, which is another form of family. 
And then he wants to marry this woman, which now is this idea, although we don't know if she has kids, the idea of building another family, you know, on top of the family. So there's these different levels of family and marriage and questions around domesticity to a certain extent. A lot of this is built into this thir- in, into this first act, like the, all of these ideas, uh, and and the ability to smoothly transition to different time frames. I think is aided by Obayashi's willingness to go kind of this artificial route, where we're able to just buy into all of these scene changes and and flashbacks and flash forwards because we've kind of bought into everything else that's going on in this world. It's a smoother pill to swallow. It feels like some other directors that I also like who were around in that era. Like I was talking about the, um, not the era of this, but maybe 10 years earlier. And specifically when I'm looking at the colors and the willingness to be a little more out there and, and he doesn't go as far, but what I'm getting from color in here is someone like Seijun Suzuki in Tokyo Drifter. And as we know, Suzuki killed himself in Nikatsu because he wouldn't tow the company line because he kept being more and more experimental. So, so the idea that now ten years later you got this guy who can you know basically go off the rails <laughs> compared to uh, Suzuki is is kind of amazing. And then there's a certain level in here as I'm watching it, to be honest, and this would be sort of in the same era of. And, and he's not even that wacky uh, compared to what Obayashi is doing. Maybe mm-hmm. somebody like uh, Jodorowsky, who in you know Holy Mountain, which we've done here on the projection booth, has that ability to just be absurdist or surreal or magical realism to just blow things out of proportion in order to tell a, a deeper story or a, or a more engaging uh, way of telling that story for the audience on what he wants to do. Well, I did forget that originally they weren't supposed to – they weren't going to go to the auntie's house. They were supposed to go to camp. It was the six girls other than Gorgeous were going to go to camp while she was going off with her father. And then, again, another aspect of family, kind of to pick up on what you guys are saying, the woman who was going to chaperone them, I believe it was, is going to have a baby. So they end up not being able to go to camp. And we get – I think we get that information from Mr. Togo. Togo. I can't remember. Mr. Togo, yeah. First time I read it, I read it as Torgo. So I was just like, oh, man, this would be awesome. (laughs) See, I always just think of Duke Togo, a.k.a. Gogo 13. He's very hip, this Mr. Togo. (laughs) He's got the cool car. He's got the big sideburns. He's definitely the object of affection for fantasy. And I love some of the cutaways that we get as she's dreaming about him. Just fantastic stuff. And he has a problem where he gets a bucket stuck on his ass and he's (laughs) flying around all over the place. Almost gets hit by a car. The contrast between the fantasies about him and the realities, at least through in the movie world, about what we're showing about him are are pretty hysterical. He's definitely not a uh, knight on a white horse. Going back to uh, Ryoku, the possible new wife, her outfit is very interesting to me. I mean, she I believe she's dressed all in white, which we get later on as far as the uh, the auntie and her wedding gown. But Ryoku always has this scarf around her neck, which always seems to be billowing. It's almost like she is shot consistently in, in slow motion with that 
scarf just billowing out behind her. It becomes like kind of her motif throughout the the rest of the film. I love the way that she's introduced in that scene, as I said, on the patio or the, you know, and it's in slow-mo and it almost has this, like, like as I'm watching it, I go, oh, that's like a David Lynch move, like <laughs> something real slow-mo and you just sort of, it's almost like she floats into into the scene. She must have been on like a dolly track or something and just kind of pushed her because it doesn't look like she's walking. This is a great example of of one of the things about this film that I kind of appreciate. There are things that have symbolic depth and there are things that do not. And Obayashi is kind of like challenging us to see, okay, what is the style with something behind it and what is style for style's sake? What what is style without the substance? I think he's using both and he's not using them with any kind of pattern. So people can take from it what they, you know, just get upon their own viewings. It's very interesting. At this point, she is upset with her dad because he's going to marry this woman. And he's like, well, I guess we're not going on our vacation now. So she writes her auntie and mails it off. And just before she gets the return letter from the aunt, this white cat shows up. And the white cat pops up all over the place so they get on the train to go to the aunt's house and the white cat is there in the train it's like what are you doing here you know so she starts carrying around this white cat which i think the first time i saw it i understood later the connection of the white cat later in the film but on the first viewing you might not get it and now i understand it is basically the white cat is the aunt's familiar if she's a witch which the aunt could be seen as a witch i guess um, then the idea of the familiar in, in medieval mythology, the idea that there are animals that witches can send out as their minions to do their bidding is is interesting because the thing just keeps popping up and and shows up more and more, especially around the house. Well, cats are such a big part of the supernatural for for Japan. I mean, there have been so many horror films. I mean, not necessarily the new crop of the, as people call it, the J-horror stuff, but especially back with like, you know, thinking of like Koroneko and, and older films like this. That was such a, a major part of the mythology that I really was not surprised to see this cat show up. And I love the way that when we do see that cat on the train, how it's like the iris of the camera just on the cat. <laughs> and like, you know, of course, like there, there's not one trick that Obayashi does not use in this film. Every single cinematic trick that you could possibly do is being used in this. And that is definitely one of those great ones where we see the just the the screen is black but there's that white cat down sitting on the train and then we go to the rest of the scene oh i mean just from the technical end i mean there's irises there's still frames there's stop motion there's juxtapositions there's uh superimpositions there's matte paintings there's miniatures i mean just just name it he's using something he's even he's even got blue screen in here a real primitive version of blue screen which of course was being used as star wars around the same time and he also plays with – there's that scene where uh, one of the girls watches one of the other girls and she's uh, going back and forth looking at her with one eye and then closing it and looking at her with the other eye. And you see the shift, that eye shift. <laughs> and it's an extended, very strange scene. For what reason? It's a, it's just a, yeah. one more kind of visual cue to see this this change in people. 
which I remember seeing that the first time someone did that in a film. I mean, it was obviously done here years before, but the first time I ever saw such a similar thing done was in the first Wayne's World, where he's laying down with Tia Carrera, and he's like, camera one, camera two, camera one, camera two. And he's got this where you see her from two, you know, close but different angles, you know, one after another. And I thought, I'm like, man, that's interesting. You know, he was doing the same thing here. And we even have animation here. We have this great animated sequence of the train going through the country and just all these rainbows and this fantastic little sequence as they're going out to see Gorgeous's auntie. And this is where we get the story that ties in the auntie story. And it becomes a story on loss and love in World War II. It's all done, once again, another trick of movie style within a movie, of basically a silent film. It's in uh, Academy Aperture. It's all in square as opposed to being widescreen. Black and white, intertitles, and also a level of gorgeous narrating, explaining what's happening. And then the girls commenting as if they were sitting and watching this thing. And I remember at one point, there's the atomic explosion, uh, Hiroshima, and the one girl says, it's like cotton candy. And all of this you know, stuff in there where the girls are like, oh, it's so beautiful, and oh, you know, love and everything. So there's this whole thing about uh, the auntie and her boyfriend who gets drafted to go off to fight, and he said, I will return, I will come back. And she's like, okay, I'll wait for you. And that's what the story really becomes, is somebody who's waiting and waiting for someone who never returns. And this is where, um, from Obayashi's own background, he was only about seven or eight when the war ended. But it did have a profound impact on him. As a matter of fact, he says in the documentary that's on the Criterion Blu-ray that... He remembers Hiroshima when the explosion happened, and he grew up in Hiroshima, and his childhood friends died. They were all gone. of them. Yeah, yeah, all of them were gone, and he was the only one left. So he's, in a way, I think, dealing with his loss, and then also the idea of the loss of this generation and what does it do to you, and, and how does that loss sort of impact the rest of your life and how can it how this negative thing this horrible negative thing can lock you in the past and you can't move forward is basically what i kind of got from maybe the symbolism of the ante well it's interesting that just like gorgeous that all of his friends died off and in this one it is the whole story is of friends being killed off one by one i was reminded of when we were talking about cruel story of youth which uh, on that podcast, of course, everyone listening should go and listen to that podcast, too. But, uh, you know, th- this idea with the conflicting generational relations after the war following 1945 and the decades after where you get the new generation. And there seems to be, you know, part of the movie in house seems like this apparition is lonely, but also angry. And I think that part of the anger is born of the way these young girls take their current peacetime era for granted, you know, but to, and that, that line where she calls says that the mushroom cloud is like cotton candy. I think that's a pretty telling line um, that, uh, that kind of dooms them. I mean, that's, that's something I think that, uh, that this, uh, this apparition has a lot of, of, you know, rage about and, points that rage at these at these young girls who are kind of 
you know, in their way kind of trite. I've talked a lot on this month about uh, fairy tales, and this film definitely seems to kind of become a fairy tale at one point. It seems like once they get to the village, once they're off the train and off the bus and everything, and they get to that village, it really feels to enter into this kind of fairy tale realm, especially when they're – it's almost like the movie – almost starts again at one point because they're going across this bridge and it's like a roll call as we see each of the characters as they're crossing the bridge and we get their name next to them as they go across and then they go into the scary woods on their way to their auntie's house but basically grandmother's house you know that was kind of interesting and then one thing i wanted to say before that was when they get to the sign that talks about the village it says something like, um, return to the country, get married. So there again is that marriage theme that we have throughout, you know, and relationship theme that we have throughout this film. Calling it a fairy tale kind of fits because, I mean, what is sort of the, uh, the, the overall plot of a lot of the Grimm's tales? It's always going through the woods to go visit someone, you know, Little Red Riding Hood or whatever, you know, so and ending up in the house and then and then something bad happens in the, in the house. So it, it in a lot of ways, it does fit into that whole idea. And as we get into they get into the house we find that her grandmother is uh, her auntie is there but she seems to be infirmed she's in a wheelchair she can't really walk uh the cat's happy to be back on her lap and of course she has bright white hair just like the cat does so there's all of this stuff with her being rather infirmed and as things continue to plot along and sort of the way that she speaks to them you know, almost that like, you know, um, good enough to eat you with kind of thing, you know, <laughs> going back to uh, Little Red Riding Hood. She starts making her marks on, OK, well, that girl would be good. She would be tasty in the case of Mac, you know, who's who's got a little weight on her as we go along and the girls start to disappear or be dismembered or whatever happens. Um, she gets more and more. She gets stronger. She gets more power. She comes back to life. Yeah, she can walk at one point. She doesn't need the dark glasses anymore. She doesn't like to go out into the sunlight, which I found interesting. Kind of a nice like vampire overtone to it. And yeah, she definitely seems to be at least, um, if not a literal vampire, a psychic vampire, because she does seem to gain strength by having them around. I think she even says that at one point, like, your vitality has revived me. She also doesn't cast a reflection. And then almost like um, Lugosi and Dracula with the, no, I never drink wine. She's showing them the kitchen and says, well, you can, you can cook in here. And it's like, well, what about the fridge? And it's like, oh, the fridge is broken. Don't worry about that. And it's like, would well, you cook? She's like, no, I don't cook. So she doesn't need to eat. So she is undead. So there's all of these little nods to maybe she is a vampire. Maybe she is undead. But it's not really fully explained until things start to go nuts. And the only time we really see her eating is when she's eating this watermelon, which kind of is representative of Mac's head, which had come out of the well where they were keeping the watermelon cold. And that great shot of her opening her mouth and having an eyeball in her mouth was fantastic. That's a really interesting scene, too, because it comes pretty early on. Other than Mac's demise at that point, the girls are still pretty, you know, they're they're oblivious. <laughs> but she's more than willing to kind of sneak things to Gorgeous, her, her niece, saying, hey, check this out. You know, there's something else going on here. 
yeah, she and Gorgeous definitely have a connection, which will become more and more strong as the movie goes on. I love the skeleton that we have in the clinic, which is just such a cartoonish type skeleton. It does not look like it's medically accurate at all. I actually think that Human Centipede is more medically accurate than that. <laughs> well, the the other thing that's funny in here, and uh, we've talked about it from the aspect of this is kind of a kid's film. I, I can see this being of interest to teenagers and maybe a little younger. But the thing is, is that all of the deaths, I guess they're kind of gruesome, but they almost have this sort of like bizarre edge to them that doesn't make them. I I don't know. I didn't feel the same sort of gruesomeness as, for example, maybe when I was a kid and I watched something like A Nightmare on Elm Street. They're very William Castle. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember 13 Ghosts, but the effects and the way that the deaths are pulled off here are very similar in that they're kind of like almost like Carnival Funhouse deaths particularly melodies where you know it's clearly that uh black on black trick going on but yeah it's meant kind of more for kids even though it's fingers getting chopped off and stuff like that well at least i don't know if it's meant for kids so much as it's meant to be kind of hearken to that kind of feeling it's hard to tell who this movie is for there's a lot of nudity as well you know this brings up an interesting point about about who the audience should be because you know, w- since this movie has been released by Janice and more people have seen it, one thing I hear from a lot of people is something along the lines of, oh, it's just another Japanese WTF movie, those Japanese and their crazy movies. At the time, this movie was – it's not normal. Like, nobody knew what to make of this movie. The Japanese film industry had no idea what to do with this movie. A lot of the audience had no idea what to think of this movie. So it's not just – that it's a Japanese movie, it is of itself just a strange piece of cinema. Well, I don't think that we could spend 45 minutes here having a very pleasant conversation about the movie if it was just a whole load of WTF with no kind of other themes going on to it. So I'm not putting you down, Miguel. I'm putting down the people that would be like, you know, oh, it's just, it just blow it off, you know, just kind of label it as one thing, put it up on the shelf and be like, well, that sure is a weird movie. Oh my gosh, have you seen House? It's crazy. Yeah, there's much more going on here. I mean, to me, it's it's a juxtaposition of sort of this wacky over-the-topness with sort of staid gothic ideas, like the whole thing about the house and the haunted house and old dark house kind of thing and, and, and all that with this cartoony aspect. It, to me, it works. I, I don't know how it works, but it works. It shouldn't work. <laughs> I just like the, the, every time I watch it, I go, how does this work? Like this guy's a fucking genius to be able to figure out how to get the tone right. And to even to juxtapose, you know, just the juxtaposition of those tones, because for example, the, the scene with melody where she gets eaten by the piano, which is really over the top and bizarre is intercut with a scene where gorgeous is dressed up like her mother as this bride. And there's all this gothic, real sort of quiet element to that. And then it cuts back and forth between that and this piano eating her and then her fingers still playing and and all of this other, you know, high color and weirdness. I think anyone else doing that, we'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, like, how is this working? I think that your idea about it being a fairy tale, both of you, is, is on point. You know, one thing that all fairy tales have in common is that they're didactic. The whole point of them is that they have something that the audience, in in a fairy tale's case, definitely children, 
is supposed to take from it in order to correct his or her behavior. And if we if we look at a house through the eyes of a fairy tale in that way, I'm not sure I want to call it a didactic film per se, but there's definitely something that Obayashi is trying to tell us with with kind of the the shenanigans that are going on on screen. And, uh, you know, I think that the the experiences we were talking about with with uh, with Hiroshima and, and and probably some experiences that he's had, you know, growing up and and in, and in the school setting, because there's definitely some teen angst going on here as well. I think all of that is is behind just the uh, the cartoonishness and some of that. I think that's some of the depth that you get into. What it's talking about kind of works on two different levels. And we can, you know, I don't know if we want to get into the totality of what I see as the thematics until we talk about the ending, but I, I can at least talk to one half of it. And the one half of it is, to me, if we want to talk about what is the theme, because that's what fairy tales are about, or, you know, Aesop's fables or whatever, I see it as a film about dealing with the angst of becoming a woman and the angst of growing up and sexuality and marriage and domesticity because the house is literally eating the girls, Mm -hmm. you know? So the idea that when you become domesticated by getting married and having everything that a house represents with that, it will swallow your individuality so to me, I almost see it as a cautionary tale of of marriage and growing up. It's almost like stay youthful as long as you can, because, you know, if, if you go any further, you're going to end up old and eaten, you know, if not literally, then some sort of part of you. In some I, way. Think, I think a lot about that can be gathered from the uh, Obayashi's source for a lot of the ideas for this film. But I think we'll probably wait on that until after the break here. Well, we just keep teasing the second half of the show. (laughs) It does take a technician and a storyteller of certain regard to be able to take us into some really crazy moments of this film and then be able to bring us back and not have it feel like certain moments are completely out of character. And by that, what I'm talking about is the after auntie is able to start walking again and things start to look a little suspicious, there's a point where she goes inside of her refrigerator, which is a, a, a just a great moment where she disappears. And then she shows up in the rafters. And then we get this montage that lasts for a little bit of just absolute insanity of her dancing in the rafters, her dancing with the skeleton, the cat on the piano, and the cat kind of playing a tune, the the same theme that we've heard throughout the rest of the film, but playing it with meows instead of with the piano tune. And that we go into this whole realm of insanity, and then he's able to pull us back into the film and let the rest of the narrative play out without that seeming like it was sticking out like a sore thumb. I think that's because he's, you know, the film is set up that way from the beginning. If you can buy in to the opening credits and to the scene with Gorgeous's father and future stepmother in that wildly artificial environment, then you can pretty much just go for the ride with anything. I, I think that it, it's kind of, you know, he he built this world and invited us in perfectly right from the first frame. 
And I was talking earlier about the whole idea of fracturing bodies, the way that we have fractured people through that glass at Gorgeous's house. And we get fracturing now of body parts, you know, Max head coming out of the well. Uh, we'll have legs flying around, Kung Fu's legs flying around at one point. Um, but we have this great scene of Gorgeous in front of a mirror. Rob, you're talking about how she is very intent on putting on her makeup, and she's putting on makeup in front of her auntie's mirror. We have her being fractured into three images in this mirror, but then we also have it goes farther, the mirror cracking, blood coming in these cracks, and then even cutting to her with cracks across her face that start to fall apart in this fire underneath her face. Just a, a really interesting process shot that they're doing and just kind of really calling to this whole idea of these body parts and these bodies being fractured. And there's a part later on where we have almost like this again, animated sequence where we have all of these different body parts of these girls kind of all over the place. And we even get those, those um, you know, the fingers from Melody that you were talking about before playing the, the, the melody on the piano with just the fingers kind of almost like marionetting down from the ceiling. Just absolutely crazy stuff, but I, I love how it, it, that stuff is shot. One thing that's interesting about the fingers, too, is that... Uh, it doesn't let there, there's a there is an despite the kind of wild tone this movie has there's an undercurrent of anger here and with that that scene with the fingers the each individual fingers you know plinking the keys of the um, the piano but when the melody is done the piano shuts itself really forcefully and smashes the fingers that's kind of like, and that's, and you get that nice spray of blood coming out of there. Yeah. And that's the end. And and you look at this and you're like, huh, that's kind of, it's, it's a little bit disturbing, but it's a little bit cute. But that last note with the thing slamming down on the fingers, the cuteness is kind of gone. It, it, it's kind of like, Oh, it, it, it takes a weird turn with that. And Rob, you had mentioned the Evil Dead, Evil Dead meets Scooby-Doo, and there definitely are a lot of moments in the film that really hearken to Evil Dead for me, especially those moments where we have a lot of blood that sprays, like spraying out from the piano and some other parts, and it almost reminds me of just that moment, I guess it's more Evil Dead 2, really, when Ash goes crazy and the whole house is reacting to him, the you know the, the deer head laughing and all of these things going on, and just that kind of twistedness that Raimi is able to put onto the screen, that almost feels like... 80% of what House is, is just that moment of madness that Ash is experiencing. This is a year before they really go out in earnest to try and make Evil Dead. So I think in 77 may have been when they did Into the Woods, the, the short version. And it's just, uh, it's interesting to see people play around the same ideas. Like we talk about the zeitgeist concept of, you know, why were people all doing this and three or four different places around the world around the same time. 
Yeah, and it's a matter of were they aware of this? I don't see us necessarily having uh, access to House here in Detroit in 1977 or 78. Well, I was thinking about uh, Toho, and the only thing that I can think of, because this would have been, I mean, VHS just started, so I don't think there was anything besides maybe a Godzilla film that you would have seen in Detroit, either on VHS or you know late night TV. I think the only way you probably would have seen House, because it was never really distributed in the United States, uh, would have been as if I think it was in Los Angeles, Toho actually had their own theater for a while. And I don't know when it went out of business, but they used to play their movies at their theater in Los Angeles to basically a majority Japanese audience, from what I understand. It's hard to say. This this film almost immediately faded into obscurity for a while. I wasn't sure if it was just me hearing this, because there there are interesting sound effects throughout the film. There's um, this kind of siren that I associate with Japan. I usually associate it more with like a, a boat type of siren that I hear early in the film when um, Gorgeous is contemplating writing to her aunt. She kind of spins around in a room at one point and there's this siren that goes off. And then later on, I think it's just prof and fantasy are left from the girls and then gorgeous is kind of assume the mantle of her aunt. She puts on the dress and it's kind of hard for me to even tell the two apart at one point, which is her aunt and which is gorgeous. Was it just me or was I hearing babies crying at one point? Like sometime around when Kung Fu's leg, disembodied leg goes into the chest of drawers and is, you know, kind of moving from one drawer to another. I swear I heard a baby crying. There's a lot going on in the soundscape. I'd have to go back and listen for them, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either because, once again, it it plays into this whole thing of these girls uh, talking about marriage, talking about families, the whole questions of families and things like that. So, I mean, it would make complete sense that it would be in the soundtrack somewhere. I did want to ask what happens to Prof because I know what happens to Fantasy, but I don't know what happened to Prof. By the time that Prof and Fantasy are on the little raft in what I guess is Blanche the cat's blood that came out of the painting's mouth, there's that wild scene where Prof, we follow her down deep into the mire and her body just kind of dissolves away. I just figured that that was kind of like stomach fluid and she was being digested. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the ending as well, because that is kind of confusing for me. Because, well, one thing, I love that Mr. Togo does not save the girls. You know, he is definitely not that (laughs) knight on a white horse (laughs) that you're talking about before that we see in that fantasy of fantasies. The hell happens this guy, him in the watermelon cellar, and this bear? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, is it Prof who says the line? There's a great line. Yeah, it's Prof and Fantasy who's left. And and Fantasy says, he promised us, he promised us he'd get here. And Prof says, yes, but he didn't promise the house. And I think the house just didn't accept him. He couldn't find them, and he couldn't find the house without the house wanting to be found. But he did seem to kind of skirt the, the borders there of just the weirdness surrounding the house. So I'm, I'm actually kind of conflating two scenes, both with Mr. Togo. There's one part where they're talking about uh, him, and it's right after, I believe, that fantasy of, of fantasies. And we have this 
guy enter into this frame, into the frame, the old man, this old man, oh, and doodles. he's laughing. Yeah, yeah, and but it's in their frame, and then we kind of move back with him, and it's a whole different scene of Mr. Togo eating noodles, and that's where the bear is, is he's at the noodle shop with this old guy and Mr. Togo. I don't know why there's a bear there, but there is a bear there. And by that, I don't mean, you know, like a very well-built uh, homosexual man. I mean, like a literal bear. So. Yeah, yeah, with a with a headband, I think, and a yeah, kimono, the bear is, like a the- karate outfit. Are, are you going to question that when someone is turned into a pile of bananas? I mean, come on. Speaking of bananas, I mean, that's what Mr. Togo seems to be all about is the bananas. And that, I love that shot of him in his car where it's going backwards and forwards and he's smacking himself on the head, just going bananas, bananas, bananas. Yeah, I think at that point he has just lost it. <laughs> but no, rather than him coming to save the day, and I wouldn't even say that Ryoku saves the day, but she definitely re-enters the story because she did say at the beginning, I will go visit them at you know, the aunt's house. And what do you guys make of this ending as far as her and gorgeous kind of sitting down across from one another? Well, to me, I got it that gorgeous has taken up the mantle of her aunt that the, like you were talking about the anger of the previous generation will now continue and that she's probably dead and has been incorporated into the house as a ghost. And she's just continuing the same weight or, you know, haunting. There are some 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 um, clues in the monologue as this whole scene's taking part. And one thing I, I want that I've always felt is that she has grown up and she has been able to accept this new mother. You know, there's that line that says people are never really gone if you remember them. That's the line that kind of trips me up because. It's like, is this a uplifting ending or (laughs) because they're all still devoured? (laughs) She says something about how her friends will wake up soon and they'll be hungry. Yeah. Yeah. So I get it that from that, they've all been incorporated into the house, that they're all spirits in the house. And now it has to feed even more and it feeds on unmarried girls. So um, since this woman is not married to her dad. One can only guess that maybe she's the next one to get eaten. I don't know. (laughs) Is that why she's on fire? Could be. Okay. I wasn't sure if she had a power and she was kind of exhibiting that power or if Gorgeous was burning her up. I thought Gorgeous was burning her up, actually. Okay. Yeah. Is it like spirits of domesticity that you you think? I think the whole thing is a tale on domesticity and fear of growing up. To me, it is a. It, it, I can understand why it is the way it is, and we'll talk more about this after the break. Haha. <laughs> See you again. Um, <laughs> but um, it's coming, folks. It's coming. But it. I mean, to me, it feels once again that this is about angst over growing up, angst over becoming a woman, angst over all of those things of domesticity. Is there anything else we want to say about house before we go to the break? I guess I, I want to just bring up the artifice again, just because, you know, um, you know, Todd Statman, my friend Todd and I uh, have discussed on my podcast about the beauty of artifice. And I think that if, if you're going to find an example of, of the beauty in artifice, then house really kind of lives that mock that, that maxim. Um, it's, there are some films that have artifice because, they have no other choice because of budgetary constraints. This film 
had a decent sized budget for a major Japanese studio, but still chose to go with more theatrical elements with purpose, with intent for a good reason. And I think that that's why that's why I'm really involved in this film, I think, because with artifice, we have to do a little work as an audience. We have to put our imaginations into it. We have to meld ourselves with the film. And if you can do that, it becomes a stronger experience for you. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to say before we go into the directing and all that kind of stuff. All right, and with that, we are going to take a break and play a few words from our friends. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here, hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast, hoping you'll turn in... How hard is it just to point the damn show? Do it right, I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie, and everything's delicious, especially the host, The Sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the popcorn Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week, we choose a movie based on a monthly theme, and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one 
the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. We are back and we were talking about house. Now we made a lot of promises in the first half of this discussion. So <laughs> hopefully we're not going to forget. Anything. <laughs> well, are, are we still going? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one big thing that I think, uh, as I brought up before, the fear of becoming adult, I think has a lot to do with the fact that the film was co-written by Obayashi's daughter who came up with some of the, the frights and scares and, and stories and, and things that he eventually incorporated into the script. And she was 10 years old at the time. So I'm sure she was looking around going, these are the things that freak me out. And he just found a way to kind of marry that with his own, I guess, in his youth being freaked out at the disappearance of all his friends in the war. Yeah, I know she came up with things like the grandfather clock and the um, futons that destroy, um, I believe it's sweet. It kind of reminded me when I read that she had a hand in this, and I know that she's older than the creator of this, but it reminded me of the freeform kind of thought of, of Axe Cop <laughs> and just how wild Axe Cop can get when you have a very young person who's kind of dictating this story to the, you know the older person who's writing it so i love that there is that kind of freedom of of thought and that kind of ability to enter into the surreal which is just kind of their their normal state where you know magic still can happen when you're at that age well two yeah. things i love axe cop because axe cop for those who don't know is a comic book that i think the the kid now is probably 10 but when it started he was four or five years old and his brother was the the artist, and he would work out these scenarios as a five year old, and then he would make the the comics out of them. But the the other aspect of this is um, Obayashi says in the documentary that's like I said, excellent sort of uh, little interviews and whatnot on the Blu-ray about how he doesn't like talking to adults because he finds adults to be very limited. They only sort of look at the world in one way, and the way that seems sort of what you expect he goes he but when calls you talk it to that children, boring human level so but when you talk to children you get all these bizarre possibilities and connections and that's as he said what he was trying to do with this film was to have that childlike ability to to jump from scene to scene and, and have all of these uh, odd imaginations the things that started them on this path to make this film was the movie jaws and uh, how they wanted to make a movie like Jaws. And he says in that documentary that adults, when they see a movie about sharks, that just leads them to do one about bear attacks. That's the best they can do. You know, I, I was wondering if he had seen Grizzly, if he was actually making a pot shot at, at the movie Grizzly, which is literally just Jaws with a bear. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, he's like, okay, I want to do 
this kind of fantastic film, but I don't want to fall in that trap. I, I want something to be wild. I want something to be powerful. And I think one thing that he says that is kind of just from a philosophy of cinema perspective, it's something that really resonates with me is the power of cinema is not in the explainable. It's in the strange and the inexplicable. And that's where children can come in. I mean, that's what drove him to his daughter as as a, a fountainhead for these ideas, because children come up with things that can't be explained. I want to say that when it came to him, his background was obviously not in commercial film. You know, this was not a film by somebody who's out there to uh, turn a quick buck on the box office. Now, remind me if I'm right here, Rob. He was a experimental film director who then moved to commercials for a while. Yeah, this is the background I've come to understand about him, both through the documentary and my reading, is that in the early 1960s, he started making short films. And a lot of his friends uh, who were in this sort of like avant-garde world with him were doing, you know, one, two-minute short films and then he made this movie called emotion which is on the uh the dvd and blu-ray of house which you should watch and it owes a lot to like i said the french new wave so it was 1966 there's a lot of intertitles there's a lot of jump cuts there's a lot of interesting ideas going on in there i think it's very well done uh it's probably about 30 minutes and he said that shortly after that in the late 60s because his film Emotion had played at what he would say was, um, I guess they had this thing like in Japan during that era, kind of like happenings, like in America, you know, where it was like, we'll play the baby, we'll play these films in the basement of the church or something, like underground film in New York. He said that there were these things called event halls where they would have these art and installations and they would show film. And he said that his film eventually went on to play at like three quarters of the universities in Japan and the students saw it. And then the commercial directors, the guys who were uh, the producers for commercials were looking for something new and they thought, well, you know how to make a short story. You know how to make a short film because you've done these one, two minute films so you should be able to direct commercials and be able to do something interesting with them. And he said that at the time, he was like, fine, great. I can do whatever I want as long as I put the product in the great. And he said that there were those who were with him in were much more arty who were like, oh, you're just a sellout. And how can you make commercials? That's terrible. you know. And, and I also found that was funny, sort of a similar attitude with uh, the studio directors where he was talking about at Toho – he got the script approved two years before he was able to make the film and nobody wanted to direct it. <laughs> and they were like, well, first off, we wouldn't know how to direct this. And number two, we don't want to make a commercial film. We want to make a good proper movie that has a nice score and is important. We want to make important work. We don't want to make populist trash. So in a way they sort of saw he was getting it from both angles. He was getting it from the mainstream film directors in Japan who were like, no, 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 I'm here to make important films. And he was getting it from his art school friends who were like, no, 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 you know, don't sell out and be commercial. So he was willing to go, look, I'll do whatever I want. As long as I can do whatever I want, I don't care. You know, and that seems to be his attitude. Fine. <laughs> I'll do a cologne commercial with Charles Bronson, which is the most <laughs> crazy cologne commercial I've ever seen. There's two versions of it that I absolutely love and you can get on YouTube 
watch the longer one. I think it's two minutes, and it basically is an epic film of Charles Bronson selling Mandan cologne. And it, it, yeah, like it goes places you don't expect. There are some things that sh- that show about him as an artist in this whole uh, thing about being a commercial director. Uh, that I think is really interesting because you you talk about the pretension behind what people think art should be. And he was looking at these commercials and the companies were willing to put up some big bucks for these commercials. So, you know, if he, he could go to work at a studio and make a movie on a, on a small budget or he could make a two minute commercial with these huge budgets. And he's like, you know, if I can take this money and put a gorgeous sunset in a commercial, that's art to me. His view of what can be art if you put, you know, some kind of creative spin on it is something I appreciate a little bit. He He's able to let go of the pretensions and just try to make something that he likes, even if it is selling cologne. I did want to say that to tie this into some older episodes, I mean, eventually uh, Obayashi would work with the Art Theater Guild, which is, to me, a major important thing out of Japan, where they would produce things like um, showing Imamura's A Man Vanishes or early uh, Oshima films and just the list of filmmakers that worked with Art Theater Guild uh, is just a who's who of fantastic directors, especially Japanese new wave directors. So people like Ojima that we've talked about before with cruel, cruel story of youth or Teriyama, uh, I believe they, they did uh, farewell to the arc and he had a lot of his uh, short films Emperor tomato ketchup and stuff were put out through art theater guild. So yeah, Obayashi was definitely kind of one of these heavy hitters when it came to being a respected artist eventually, if not at this point, but I think he was in the early days and then, Kind of, they were questioning his cred at this point, but yes, he definitely was uh, enveloped by the, you know, uh, held by the fold when it came to being known as a artist, at least when it came to these art theater girl films. Well, the man was a genius, and he's kind of my hero when it comes to how he was able to bend Toho to his will. He basically forced their hand to get House made. And the story behind this is one of my favorite things about him. Oh, this is good. So he is told, hey, we want something like that Jaws. So why don't you write it? He's like, okay. And so he comes up with this. He gives it to the studio. And he says that much like here in America, which, you know, Mike and I, you know, huge fans of quote unquote new Hollywood, that period between the late 60s and the early 80s when you had all those great directors who were – able to do stuff because Hollywood didn't know what the hell to do because the youth weren't going to the movies anymore. Uh, Much the same thing was happening in Japan. So they said, we can't make heads or tails out of it, but fine. Looks good to us. We'll green light it. So he goes, so when do we start shooting? It's like, it's not that easy. We have to check with the directors we have on staff, and if someone wants to do it, then they can do it. No one wanted to do it. So it just sat there in sort of development hell, as we would say here in America. And he goes, well, can I at least go out and tell people that it's been approved? Oh, yeah, sure. So because of that, he's able to get a novelization written. He's able (laughs) to get a manga made. He's able to get a radio play made that does really well. And even the soundtrack 
to a movie that wouldn't be out for at least another year. So he gets all of these things. Plus, he gets a uh, a fashion show at a major uh, Tokyo uh, department store. Like all of these things come together that help to sell the idea of house, even before anyone had even seen it. So by the time the uh, the book is out and the radio play was huge, Toho goes, "Well, I guess we actually have to make this thing now." And then he's like, well, you know, you couldn't get anyone to direct it. So what if I direct it? And it's like, okay, well, I guess we'll bend our rules so you can direct it. But, you know, you're not really supposed to because you're not on staff here. You know, so they eventually came around and that's how the film got made. Yeah. So Obayashi did what we would, we now would call built brand familiarity. Almost a whole social campaign. Yeah. Basically on his own. You know, he, he, he went around, he found these artists. He had been working with this composer. This is actually a funny story, too. He, he had been working with this composer, a friend of his, on other stuff in the past. And, uh, and I think on some commercials, too, and I think the composer said, hey, if you ever actually make a movie, I want to compose it. And finally, this came around, and, and Obayashi said, well, here's a movie. You want to compose it? And and the, the guy was like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> he was kind of like the, the filmmakers that Rob was talking about. I was like, oh, I want to make a film like Ozu or, or, or uh, Kurosawa. You know, I want to make an important film. But anyway, he did end up convincing i wish i could remember his name unfortunately i didn't take notes this is all memory but uh he convinced his friend to compose a lot of the score for it by telling him he wanted a very rich score and he is the person who actually wrote that theme that we hear basically ad nauseum <laughs> throughout the film uh yeah. that uh, dun, 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 that one and then they also find this band too to to do some music and and, you know, this band was still pretty young and they were, he convinced them to make the soundtrack for it, which is just hilarious. And I went on to look at them and I guess they had a pretty big career. They they would sing in both Japanese and in English, which is why, like, at least half the songs in here are in English. I think two of them are actually Caucasian. Yeah. Or they were mixed. They were like uh, uh, American and Japanese background from mm-hmm. what I read. So. Two of the guys are like Steve Fox and Tom Schneider. That composer who didn't want to compose originally, um, he acts in the film. He's actually the guy who runs the watermelon stand. And yeah, apparently it's the production designer and then Obayashi's daughter who are the uh, the, the shoemakers. Yeah. Where we act, where we have another fragmented body part by showing the uh, the foot that's in the uh, shoemaker's sign. So the music. And I know that this is just me saying this, so maybe this will end up on the cutting room floor. Maybe it won't. But I kept thinking of Black Shampoo while I was watching this movie <laughs> because of that that tink, 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 tink thing that the piano is doing is like right out of a scene from Black Shampoo where uh, Mr. Jonathan takes care of the uh, limo driver. So every time that would start up, I just kept thinking of that. Don't be a dead hero. Like the girl said, nobody needs you around here. 
And then the main theme, the da 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 da. Just I kept thinking of uh, Diane Renee's Navy Blue. I don't know if you guys remember that song, but I'll, I'll play them side by side and we'll see if anybody else thinks that there's similarities. Not to say that one ripped off another or anything, but just the way that my mind worked. Every time I heard that phrasing, I just kept thinking of that. So I started to sing along with the music and then it would change and I'd be like, okay, yeah, this isn't that song, but just so familiar to me. Thanks to you, I'm never going to be able to not think of black shampoo when I watch House now. (laughs) That might be a good thing. Maybe. Maybe that might be a good thing. I also want to mention to bring up the cat singing that theme earlier. Oh, gosh. It, it, um, what's the word? It had a premonition for the internet. It predates the jingle cats. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Piano cat, play us out. You know, with all of this stuff, because he put all of that time into to get people to know about it and create this whole sort of lore around the story. It was a huge hit according to him and the stuff that I read. It it did way better than, than Toho expected at the box office. The critics didn't like it. If memory serves. Yeah, they hated it. Like you said, he talks about it. He goes, if we would get a mention, he goes, it was usually a paragraph or two of that. He goes, he goes, and if they went any longer, they would just trash it. You know, like no, no one saw the value in it. And he goes, that's because he goes, most of the film critics were not my generation. They were another generation back. So he goes, they were like my parents reviewing my film and this film he goes was not made for them it was made for my daughter so he goes it's like the grandparents reviewing with their sensibilities what the grandkids are watching and that's why it didn't work uh at least critically the thing is is that once again he won the system much like new hollywood did where the studio didn't know what the hell to do the kids were not going to the movies and he was able to score a big win with this thing because he was able to take these risks and to play around in that way. And I think create something that was only possible in an era in which that didn't matter. It didn't matter that it made a ton of money. Like he said, the, the studio was willing to finance movies that nobody saw but were important. You know, because that's how those directors were. They all wanted to be, as you said, the next Ozu or, you know, Kurosawa or whatever. Talk about the resurgence, the discovery again in, in you know, in the 2008 when it's picked up by none other than Janice, you know, one of these great purveyors of, of, of art film and, and, and classics and essential films like House. Now we have it for a new generation, more internationally available than anywhere before. Well, I'm trying to remember what the timeline was when it came to that, because it was a couple things. It was the Janus re-release, and then wasn't there also the Masters of Cinema put it out around the same time as well, the UK label? I'm not sure about the UK release. All I know is that it popped up on the DIA schedule, which, to be honest, nothing against the DIA, but sometimes they don't take too much of a risk. Like Some of their stuff's kind of safe. 
Sometimes mm-hmm. they go a little further out. Like I saw, I stand alone there, and I was like, "Holy Ooh. shit!" I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe they put that on the schedule. But this was one of those where I was like, wow, I can't believe they put this on the schedule because I'm sure there's tons of Blue Herald grannies that were going to the DIA going, oh, let's go see this movie. And then they were like, I don't know what the hell I just saw. They were probably traumatized. Yeah, they all thought William Cat was going to be in it. Aww. <laughs> it's like, oh, I love that Hugh Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just him two hours saying it's not lupus. Nothing against William Cat or the horror film House. I actually love House, and I seem to remember really liking House 2, the second story. So from what I remember, it felt like there was the Janus releasing. There was stuff at the uh, New York – what was it? The New York Asian Festival. And then I want to say, yeah, the Eclipse DVD was out there. Or sorry, not Eclipse. The uh, Masters of Cinema DVD and – it seemed like even after this came out to DVD uh, from Criterion that it was still getting those midnight showings at places like I was talking about uh, Cinema Detroit playing it. So it had quite a, uh, a resurgence back at 2009-2010, and it was really nice to see this film made 30-some years prior to that get this recognition. And it was just like, I don't know why it was why now, but I'm just glad that it happened. Yeah. No, I'm really glad it happened. It's it's a gift to all of the world. <laughs> all of that stuff, as I talked about, the, the whole sort of domesticity theme and also the whole pain of war theme kind of idea, all of that was new to me on now what I'd probably have to say is my at least 10th viewing of this movie. <laughs> so... Anyone who has seen it and go, eh, and kind of, eh, it's just a weird thing. Like, really, like, go back and look at it again. Like, give it a couple of views. I mean, the the one that I always tell from my own personal experience, and Mike, you know this, because we did it on the show when we did our favorite films. You obviously, uh, Black Shampoo. But when we did Discreet Charm, first time I saw Discreet Charm Bourgeoisie, I hated it. It was terrible. I was like, this sucks. I don't get it. And then I went back and watched it a few years later, and I go, this is fucking genius. Not only is it genius, it's like my favorite film of all time. So sometimes it takes a little bit of age. It takes a little bit of knowledge. It takes a little bit of a willingness to wrestle with the art in order to be able to go, yeah, that's a good experience. Yeah, I agree with that. And some, and, and sometimes it does take a willingness to – well, you said go with the art, but a willingness to to be immersed into a world that can only exist within the frame of that film. You know, one of the things I love about a film like House is if I'm ever going to see anything like this, this is the only way it can happen. <laughs> you know, it's pure cinema. It only will exist within those four frame, with the four uh, walls of the frame. All right. And with that, let's go ahead and play a preview for next week's show. Blood is red. Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. Meet Sugar Hill. Not a place, but a brand new face. The foxiest, sexiest, deadliest chicken town. The mob took Sugar's man away, and now she's gonna make them pay. I want them dead! With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matres, and Baron Samney, too. 
and an army of undead behind her. There's nothing that sugar can't do. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. Sugar Hill from American International, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. All right, that's right. We will be back next week with a discussion of Sugar Hill. I think this may be the first trailer that we've played since Apocalypse Now that's been in English. Make of that what you will. Can I tell a short story about Sugar Hill real quick? Sure. So uh, a few years back, I was asked by, I'm calling you out, University of California, San Diego. I was asked by UCSD to program a kind of mini on-campus Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. And one of the films I wanted to show was Sugar Hill because it was someone's anniversary. I got shut down. I got They told me no because it was racist. And I even got uh, my friend Mark Shari, who is a Haitian man who loves that movie, to talk about – he wrote a letter to them and said that he would introduce it to give it to some context. And they still wouldn't let me do it because of that. So – uh, I have some sour grapes with that <laughs> university ever since that experience. And so I still have not been able to show Sugar Hill, but I really love that movie and I want to show it. Are you talking about the Wes- with Wesley Snipes, right? <laughs> are you guys talking about the yeah. one with Wesley Snipes? No, no, we are definitely talking about the one with the zombies. Okay, you, know, <laughs> you, know, you know, I liked that record label. It was pretty good. They were doing some good stuff. It was. They had a good gang, if memory serves. <laughs> That's right. So before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Miguel Rodriguez and Rob St. Mary. Rob, what is new with you these days? Well, I'm as busy as ever, traveling, doing my thing. Um, book's doing well, as I've talked about before, and still doing the gig with the Detroit Free Press. So every Thursday in the morning, you can get my arts and culture podcast from the Free Press called Detours. That's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Every place where you can get quality podcasts like the Projection Booth. And also, you can get it at Freep.com. Outside of that, if you want to know more about me and sort of the totality of everything that's going on, it's real simple. It's called RobStMary.com. So that's a really imaginative URL. Now, you said I can get the podcast on Thursday mornings. Could I get it on Thursday afternoons? Sure. But it's only brand new on Thursday mornings. So you want it in time so you can listen on the way to work. Plan out your weekend. Exactly. Very nice. How about you, Miguel? What's up with you? The passes for this year's Horrible Imaginings Film Festival just went on sale over at hifilmfest.com, which, of course, you can get through the Facebook page at Horrible Imaginings as well. Uh, I know that many of your listeners don't live anywhere near San Diego, but if you do want to support what we're doing, bringing film Uh, Not only the film festival, but we do year-round monthly programming. And it's not just horror. We do all kinds of stuff, too. Then there are some purchase uh, options. We have a brand-new canvas tote bag and a brand-new 2016 T-shirt and some brand-new posters with art by Argentine artist Patricio Carbajal, which is really beautiful and uh, free shipping in the U.S. So if you're interested, you should check it out. You can uh, follow me on Facebook at Horrible Imaginings. My name is Miguel Rodriguez. And, of course, there's always Twitter. Uh, my hash, my sign is H-I-F-F-S-D for Horrible Imaginings Film Festival San Diego. So, yeah, everything about the film festival is, like, completely ab- absorbing my life right now. That's going to be in September. 
Um, and of course, we have our official podcast for the film festival. Um, and the latest episode is, oh my gosh, which is, oh, the latest episode is actually a conversation with my friend John Spira, who directed a documentary called Elstree 1976. And uh, it's actually a really great conversation. So I'm proud of that episode. If you're interested in, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Elstree 1976, but it's a, it follows the lives of these people who were either extras or really, really tiny bit parts in the original Star Wars back in 77. And, uh, and so uh, it's kind of about, you know, how a lot of people will think the only thing interesting about these people is the fact that they were in Star Wars, but actually, you know, they have full lives and it's a really interesting documentary. And my conversation is all about that. Well, I will be sure to link up to your guys' stuff over at the website, projection-boot.com. While you're there, you can link over to our Patreon page where you can donate your hard-earned cash. If you donate to the show, you'll be able to have early access to new episodes before the rest of the world does. That is what I call a bargain. That is a bargain for me. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.